As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hi, I'm Keith Law, and welcome to episode 440, the big 40 of the Keith Law Show. I will be joined today by Mike Rickard of the Boston Red Sox. He's now their vice president of charge scouting. He was their scouting director for a couple of years. Uh, first, just some small administrative notes. I had a pretty big piece go up last week, uh, late last week. It may have slipped under your radar where I tried to, well, I did talk to many experts, epidemiologists, other experts on the pandemic, on coronavirus, and particularly who had looked at, followed one or more sports this year to say what lessons can we potentially take as individuals or could public policymakers take from the way that sports leagues were able to handle the pandemic. Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL, the NWSL, I believe MLS, all managed to do something. They completed some sort of season despite the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, lockdowns, little, few or no fans allowed in stadiums. Um, We're now seeing the NFL and college football struggle with many of those same challenges, uh, some of their own, some new challenges they're on making, some just the fact that case rates are surging right now, and that's obviously impacting their own ability to play. But I do think there was, there is a lot that we can take away from what each of those leagues did, and uh, hopefully the experts I interviewed will give you some sense of, of what we do know now that maybe we didn't know three or four months ago. And I'm hoping also that going forward that that will uh, maybe inform more public policy making, not just at the federal level, which is where a lot of focus is, but at the state and local level too. So that post went up for subscribers to The Athletic. You can still go to theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W for a promotional offer uh, for a short-term discounted price uh, as you sign up. Uh, If you are listening to this podcast but are not a subscriber, you can subscribe on theathletic.com, on the Athletic app, or on any site where you typically get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. If you do subscribe, especially on iTunes, I know you can leave a rating and a review. I would always appreciate it if you do so. I have seen many of you leave some positive ratings, positive comments recently, and want you to know I do read them, and I do appreciate them. Finally, as we head into the holiday gift-buying season, when Black Friday is approaching, you could be listening to this on Black Friday. 
I must remind everyone I have two books out. I had a book come out earlier this year called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. That's available in hardcover. And then Smart Baseball, my first book, originally came out in 2017. That is now available in paperback. You can buy them anywhere you buy books. I do recommend if you don't have an indie bookstore near you that is open right now, and many are, many will at least do curbside pickup, you can always go to bookshop.org. I know they have the inside game in stock. They do not have smart baseball there. So you can also go to any other, you can go to a big box retailer. But I do ask people, especially now with stores probably uh, closed or only barely open right now and potentially facing further shutdowns, try to support your independent booksellers near you if you can. They really appreciate it and it might help keep them in business until the spring. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, now it is my pleasure to be joined by Mike Rickard of the Red Sox. Mike has been with the Red Sox for uh, what seems like forever in a day. He is now the vice president uh, in charge of scouting after a couple seasons where he was their amateur scouting director and thus in charge of the draft. You know, he's also quite involved in multiple processes across the Red Sox. We're going to talk about some of that today. Mike, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So we'll start at the kind of granular level. I would love to talk about some of your more interesting prospects. I'm sure a lot of Red Sox fans and fantasy players would as well. Uh, A couple of your more interesting draft picks from the last couple of years. Let's start with Jaron Duran, who kind of made some news this year because there was a lot of talk about how he changed his swing. And we were seeing a little bit of that at the alternate site, not the ideal environment for scouting. But Talk a bit, especially about just drafting Duran, because a guy drafted as low as he was does not often turn into this good of a prospect in such a short period of time. But he really has kind of made a mark with his performance and now with this reported swing change. Yeah, he's um, he, he really took off very quickly as soon as we got him. And so much of the credit, um, you know, really with the acceleration of his process, um, through the draft goes to our area scout, uh, Justin Horowitz. Um, Jaron hit at Long Beach State in a very spread out stance. And he had a he had a really kind of a deep contact oriented approach. And and from the onset, Justin was really adamant that we, you know, could potentially make some some uh, some changes with his approach and his stance and kind of the way he's set up the box that could be very beneficial. So a lot of the credit goes to him and Jaron's extremely athletic, very twitchy. He's really strong. And we felt that eventually we weren't quite sure how quickly this would happen, that there were, there were some untapped power potential. Um, and what, what you alluded to at the alternate site, he did make a, an adjustment with his hands with the idea or the, 
the hope that he would be able to get extended a little bit better. And we, we did start to see quite a bit of that. I think he ended up hitting um, six or eight home runs at the alternate site, um, which, you know, in that setting, it's kind of very, it's challenging to decipher what exactly that means, but he certainly was getting, getting his hands through the zone considerably better and, and, and starting to really drive the ball. And uh, so that was exciting. He's someone that's really, I think he's OPS over 800 since we signed him and stolen at least 75 bases. So he's got, he's got great tools. He's a guy that doesn't strike out much. He, he sees pitches very well. So we're, we're very excited. We knew he's going to be a good hitter and, um, somebody that would be impactful on the bases. And he's continued to develop in center field as well. He's made really good strides defensively. So uh, really exciting. And if the, the um, you know, the, the, the surge of power is real, you know, we're hopeful that he ends up um, being, a, being a star player in Boston for a long time. One of the times I did get to see him just on video, you guys streamed a lot of what was happening at the alternate site. He was hitting off of uh, Jay Groom who folks haven't seen in a long time. Way back when you drafted him, I think I had him as the second best prospect in that draft class. He had this, just an unbelievable breaking ball. But due to injury, and then obviously not getting to pitch this year, we haven't seen a whole lot of him. But he did pitch, at least at the alternate site. And what I heard is that he was healthy, and it looks like he's gotten most of the way, if not all the way, back to where he was before. So kind of what's your latest update on where Groom is developmentally? Yeah, well, he's healthy, so we feel good about where he's at from a health standpoint, which is which is most important. And Jay is um, going back to your rankings and where he fit on our draft board that year. He's a, he's an anomalous talent. He's I've been scouting 21 years now, and um, you very rarely see someone like Jay that that has that type of size and loose movements to his body and throws the ball that easy. Um, his delivery has continued to kind of tighten up, so to speak. And he's, he's, um, his, his velocities, there's been some ebb and flow to his velocity at his best. He's been 93 to 96. There's been a few outings, um, where he's been a little bit less than that, but I think all of that is to be expected as he kind of works himself back into kind of a more structured and national, uh, um, natural kind of routine, um, he's starting to throw a slider, mid, mid 80 slider, which, um, one thing that's, um, uh, that's kind of to be expected with him. He's always had a really unique feel for his secondary pitches, um, as, as far as ability to command and throw strikes and the slider, um, that he's picked up and just started throwing recently has come very, very naturally to him. So that's been very encouraging as well. Um, the changeup still pretty, pretty much a, a work in progress, but we've seen outings with him where his changeup's been very good as well. So all the pieces of the puzzle are continuing to kind of come together and fall in place. And most importantly, he's healthy now and very excited to see what he can do this season. Hey, you've had some different challenges uh, really since you've been in the Red Sox scouting department, particularly as you've moved up and had more decision-making power, which is that many years, I don't know if it's actually most years, it feels like most years, you either didn't have a first-round pick or didn't have a second-round pick, which just cost you money in this current system, or you would just draft really late in the first round. How did you find that that changed the way that you would approach draft classes versus years like where you groom was, what, pick 13 Ball and Benintendi were up in the top 10 where, you know, it's much easier when you know you're looking at a very much smaller pool of players for that first pick versus years where 
you either pick late or you don't pick in the first round at all. Yeah, not having a first round pick creates tremendous um, challenges. But as far as picking late, um, the the real the real uh, challenge is is scheduling and trying to determine where you spend your time and staying staying organized and entrenched and where you're sending all of your scouts. Um, and typically, um, what what I've found, at least like maybe in the past ten years, is the the top of the draft has kind of evolved into a meritocracy where a lot of the same teams seem to be on the same players. So um, kind of determining who has a chance to get there is, is very important because you, you really want to um, spend time in the right places. Like Cassis is a good example where we got him. We, we uh, were able to, you know, accurately determine that he had a chance to be there, him and, we kind of narrowed down a list, uh, you know, a group of a small group of other players, and we were able to spend quite a significant amount of time in Cassis and getting to know him and developed a great amount of certitude that he was someone that we really uh, were hoping, you know, would get to our pick. But um, that's a big part of it. A lot of people don't understand kind of the, the challenges that surmise from picking a little bit later as far as where to spend your time, you know, in contrast to picking at the top of the draft where we'll be this year. So one thing that we've seen the last couple of years, especially is uh, a pretty big change in how most teams draft. I think most teams sort of draft with kind of similar philosophies, particularly involving the use of data. Um, Not just the use of obviously bringing the analytics or R and D departments into it, but I know from talking to you, from talking to scouts at all levels down from the area guys, all the way up to vice presidents, you speak differently about players now. You're using different. Uh, you're using the Statcast data, Statcast style data, I should say, Trackman style data, to discuss players, even as you're discussing them from what I would still say is more of a scouting perspective. So, what is your kind of general philosophy on how to bring that stuff into draft discussions? How you let it inform the picks that you make, and and how you bring two groups of people together? I think who who you know, may agree fundamentally. Obviously, you all want the best players. But your scouting group, your R&D group, they just come from completely different backgrounds in the first place. You have to bring those groups together in your discussions in the room. Yeah, it's been fascinating to see that evolve over, you know, a number of years. I, I always think back in 2005 when I first came to the Red Sox with Theo and Jason McLeod. And we were the only team at that time using video cameras. And we 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 felt that we were very contemporary at that time. And we were... You know, we, we got made fun of and teased at the ballpark because we had video cameras. And now that's such a far gone conclusion as far as being a huge part of the process. But, yeah, it's evolved. Um, I feel like in maybe around 2012 with the new CBA, teams really started to invest heavily into the draft. And um, once everyone was put on a little bit more of an even playing field and then shortly thereafter, you started seeing things kind of um, being integrated into the draft process. It, you know, teams have, have begun using a model to help line up their draft board. And, um, you know, several years back, I feel like, and these are assumptions you don't really know without working with another team, but I, I feel like there was a, a number of teams that kind of jumped in head first in regards to the model. And there were probably another group that decided to kind of <clears throat> take the process slow as far as how they were going to utilize the, the model into their process. And then, you know, there was probably a handful of others that, you know, maybe were even opposed to the notion that a model could, 
you know, fully or accurately, you know, capture subjective, you know, information from scouts. So that's, you know, then the kind of the approach is kind of widened out again, so to speak. But um, I do think that it's, you know, it, it's very, very important. We've got, we've got access to so many, so much more information now and, you know, the capability to minimize risk on a high school pitcher, so to speak, by, by, you know, having access to pitch data is, is such a big, big part of team's process now. And, um, you know, but there's been varying degrees of assimilation across the board and, um, you know, that's why teams really, um, you know, not, not everyone's doing it the same at this point. I want to probe a little bit more on that model uh, question too, which I've, I've heard this. I mean, I've heard from there are teams that eschew the model completely. There are teams that are or have been at least the way you describe where it was the model makes the picks. And a lot of times I'll hear from scouts who specifically dislike that. They feel like you're taking the, you know, frankly, I think you're probably taking a lot of the fun out of it, right? One of the better things about being in the draft room is the actual discussions. All right, who are we taking next? But at the same time, it avoids what my old mentor from Toronto, Tony LaCava, always said, no battlefield decisions. You want to know who you're taking well in advance so that you don't kind of outthink yourself at the time that the pick comes up. So how have you guys, like just for a general perspective, how have you guys in Boston approached that? Is the model do you, do you defer to the model more than anything? Are you able to sort of say, well, the model gives us a framework maybe and we'll launch from there to decide the, the final order of who we might select. And I'm thinking more of like top picks, not your 10th round pick where you're probably not having those same kind of discussions. Yeah. I mean, Paul Taboni is our scouting director and I think he's done an incredible job of, you know, finding the best best pathways and, and kind of ways to incorporate and integrate the model into our process. And, um, you know, I think we've done a really good job of kind of remaining well-rounded in that regard. Um, while, while, you know, most importantly, remaining cognizant of, of the important role that the area scout plays. Um, you know, I think you can get, because there's so, so much information, so much beneficial information that we can rely on so much objective data, so many things to look at now and consider um, that as long as you can remain, you know, well-rounded in your approach and, and um, you know, keep, keep the real focus in the end on what the area scout thinks, that, that that's where you can really benefit and create a competitive edge by using, using the model or incorporating the analytics into the process or a lot of those things. It's, it's so much different than when I first started scouting and it's um, there's, there's so much information as a scouting director or, um, you know, really any front office role at this point, you're, 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 you're trying to, you're like a orchestra conductor and the fact that you're trying to balance so many, so many different, um, different pieces to the puzzle. Yeah. And, 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 you know, while at the same time, not, not, not forgetting what, you know, the, the vital element of, of the area scout and the role that they can play. And I, I always go back to some of our, you know, we've had plenty of whiffs like everyone else, but so much, so many of our better picks, the, the acceleration in the process was really generated by the area scout. And when that area scout comes in and, he knows the player better than anyone and he's adamant and convicted on a particular player. That's, that's what I found to be where, you know, those are the players that you typically should hone in on the most. You took a soccer player, I think out of 
Tennessee, was it, a couple of years ago, who turned out to be a pretty good big leaguer. Then I believe it was the area scouts push. Um, unfortunately, that player's with the Dodgers now. But I remember at the time, right, it was the area, it was Danny Watkins, right? Is that his name? That's I mean, right. Pushed yep. for Mookie Betts. I remember you guys telling me, this was before Mookie ever played a game in the big leagues, but it was just sort of, wait, this guy's a fifth rounder. It was kind of like Duran in that 12 months after the draft, Betts had already surged well past where anybody saw him at the time of the draft in terms of his prospect status or his potential scene. We said, oh, wait a minute. This guy's clearly a lot better than we thought. And turned out he was even better than that. But I remember at the time talking to you, and I think Amiel was the director. Amiel Sade was the director at the time. We sort of, all right, what, what did you guys see? What was your process that you saw something in bets? And it really came down to what the area scout said. He was so, I think your word was convicted in the player as a person. Yeah, Danny. Danny drove that drove that thing right from the offset, and uh, he was just not only tremendously convicted on his talents and abilities, but Danny went the extra mile to get to know Mookie. I mean, he ended up going to his basketball games, and I don't know if he ended up seeing him play soccer or bowl, but I do know that he was he he developed an intimate relationship with with Mookie and his family and. Um, you know, that in the end ends up giving you great comfort to select a player when, when you know that the area scouts put in the extra effort and, um, you know, checked all, checked all the boxes, so to speak, and, and throughout the process. So, and, and, and one area scout with having a good process and making good decisions can kind of change the face of the organization, so to speak. So, well, that's, Leads you to the, the last sort of big question I wanted to talk about, and this may, we may talk about this for a bit, but obviously the landscape for scouting has changed dramatically for Major League Baseball in the last, really in the last eight months. But I think this is something that's been going on for a couple of years. Teams are just using the pandemic maybe as a bit as cover, but teams have been cutting scouting. Uh, several teams have had already more or less eliminated pro scouting. The Astros had almost completely eliminated their amateur staff at this point. And now what we've seen accelerate over the last six to eight months is a lot of teams have dramatically cut their scouting departments. And they've also scut- cut some in player development and other areas as well. I don't mean to ignore those. But since we're talking specifically about scouting, what are we entering a post-area scout world? Uh, and you know, How do you operate in a... If, if the people above you have come down and said, you can't have 13 area scouts like you used to, how, how do you react to that? Or, or, or what would you do? Would you choose to staff back up on the area scouting side if you had the flexibility to do so? Yeah, I certainly hope not. I mean, we're living in such an uncommon uh, climate right now, so to speak, with the pandemic. And unfortunately, that's left uh, many great baseball people and scouts and coaches and you know in the wake of that but I I do think that teams should should be very careful about cutting back staffs because it's going to really open up a door for the teams that that are able to sustain and and keep their staffs intact and to create tremendous competitive advantages we've got you know we didn't have a minor league season you know we haven't been able to scout um we don't have, you know, statistical information that we normally have on the prospects from last year. So the teams that are able to kind of maintain their staffs and continue to push forward with a with a stabilized process are gonna they're gonna have a real advantage moving moving forward. You know, as we as we continue and go back out and start scouting prospects and um, you know and being able to accurately 
kind of determine where they're at because trades are still going to be made and we're still going to, you know, push, push prospects forward to the big leagues and making those assessments with, with good evaluators and good staffs is going to be huge. What are you seeing on the player development side too? Because I feel like there's been less talk about cuts or changes to player development, which, you know, as you yourself have moved up through the hierarchy with the Red Sox, you've had more visibility into some of those other departments. And I guess I could ask the same thing about pro or international too. Do you see, what do you see doing or what would you do? Say, let's say that you had a general manager's job too. Looking down, you'd love to staff up where you could, but if you're told you can't, what sort of adjustments would you try to make to some of these areas so that you can make do with less without overtaxing your people too? Because you can't tell six people to do the same scouting work of 10, which I'm afraid is what might happen as we go forward. And, and teams say, wait, we still, we still need scouting reports. We just don't have as many scouts anymore. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, the big, the big part of kind of that transition from signing of a player into player development is, is being able to bridge that gap and kind of working cohesively with, with your analytics department, with your player development part, department as you hand off a player. Um, so many times we've built up years of history with a particular player and they all have strengths and weaknesses. So handing them off to a hitting coach or pitting, pitching coach and where they already have a springboard into what that player actually is, is, is a big part. I know it's a big part of our process and how we go about it. And I'm very, I feel very good about how we transition players into our player development system and kind of knowing where, where they're at, so to speak, from a development standpoint. And, you know, the, the one thing that will never change from, from a coaching standpoint is that you have to have good, knowledgeable, experienced people on the ground working with these players. There's just, there's just so much to be shared and the personal touches that a good coach can put, put into a player is that, that will never change. I mean, we're going to have access to so much new information and integrating that into our process will always be very important as far as keeping up with, with the times and, and ways to, you know, to really, um, foster that development, but but having good quality people and coaches and a consistent kind of a consistent process and build up moving forward to the major leagues is always going to be such a big thing. So I feel like because you and I know a lot of these people who have been impacted, many left out of work um, without the jobs open. You know, we're both hoping that more of these jobs will open back up in a post-pandemic world. I do worry that not only will the jobs not necessarily be available, but the jobs that may be available, maybe they're asking something different from, you know, if you've been scouting for 20 or 30 years, scouting itself has changed. And a lot of people, I give a lot of these older scouts credit, they have tried to change themselves to be able to work more in this, to be able to work in a more data-driven world where the decision-making process is different, or simply the way they're asked to evaluate scouts is different. But I I do worry about older scouts. I say older, I'm 47. That's probably my age counts as it would count as an older scout, right? If I were a scout now, I'd be like, they'd think I was a gray hair at this point. But you get to a certain point where these changes, is it easier to just hire someone who's younger, who's maybe more conversant in data? And this would apply to pro scouting, player development, international, whatever too. I mean, do you think, um, I mean, this is maybe more of a baseball question than just a Red Sox question, but are we doing enough? Are we making the environment work? Can we make this environment work for, for scouts whose um, 
who can learn or willing to learn, but let's face it, their experience is much more on the traditional scouting side or the traditional coaching side where they haven't come up through the ranks using data at every step. Yeah, I mean, quite quite honestly, I find very few people that are opposed to to new information and learning new ways of doing it. And um, you know, baseball has been constantly evolving since the game was first invented, right? If you look back at each day, de- each decade through the years, there's there's always new ways of looking at things and new information that's being kind of integrated into into the game. And um, you know, fortunately, our group with the Red Sox, we've got we've got a lot of very open-minded, progressive people that also have experience and have kind of uh, remained very open-minded to learning new things and and really doing whatever they can on an everyday basis to learn and grow and continue to help you know help us get back to where we where we should be. Um, and that, that comes from great leadership too. I mean, I've been very fortunate through the years. I've worked for four different general managers, and now with Heim, it's it's um, you know it's it, it, that comes with great leader leadership as far as um, kind of instilling that that uh, that way of thinking throughout the organization. Last thing I wanted to ask you about: you and I uh, also share a particular passion for food, especially for uh, eating out at great restaurants when we're on the road. Uh, You live in the Raleigh-Durham area, and I know what you're going to suggest, but just for the readers, maybe give us a couple of restaurants down there you particularly like, especially since local restaurants really need support right now, especially since I have a feeling a lot of us are going to be, a lot of states are going to be forcing restaurants to close again for the next couple of weeks. So if somebody was coming down to your area, what, I don't know, two or three restaurants would you suggest that they hit once restaurants are, are open again? Yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure why I'm surprised that you asked that question. I should have expected it, uh, that to be a part of the conversation at some point, but um, yeah, that's fairly easy to answer. We, my wife and I, we have a place called Stanberry um, and I, I believe you've been there. Keith, I have. But, um, great. What we love about it the most. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, we always do small plates um, and while it's located kind of right centrally located in downtown Raleigh. It's very easy access. You can pull right up to the front door and it's kind of like a, a, a family neighborhood type atmosphere, but the, um, the food's awesome. They have great drinks. It's a, it's a cool atmosphere. So that would be, that would be one of our places. Um, and then another one we actually tried last week is the place called stir and that's located in six forks. Um, I know a lot of the scouts or baseball people that come into the area stay at the um, the North Hills Marriott or the North Hills Renaissance, and it's it's basically right across the street from that. So that's another good one. Um, both privately owned, and uh, we'll be looking for business to get back on track as we move forward. Hopefully, out of this uh, out of this pandemic. So. Yes, I'm hoping that I'll either get down there to scout some of the ACC schools or maybe we'll have an NHSI this spring. Maybe that's too optimistic, but I'm going to hope right now, especially as it's really cold outside today. And I'm like already thinking about, uh, wait, how, how soon till spring? How many days till I get to go to spring training or just scout anyone south of Delaware just to get some warmth? So I'm going to try to, going to, try to stay positive on this and believe that we're going to have some kind of scouting spring leading up to next year's draft. Uh, my guest today has been Mike Rickard. He is Vice President of Scouting for the Boston Red Sox. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. That's all for this week's show. Please, everyone, stay safe this weekend. If you are traveling at all, and it does sound like most people are not going to be traveling, uh, please wear your mask. Try to stay physically distant as much as possible from other people. Our 
COVID numbers are surging across the country, even in states that had been doing reasonably well over the course of the summer. And I think we're all staring at a pretty scary next couple of months right now. So everyone do your part. I know I certainly will. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe.